Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Charlestown has no laundromat. How gentrification left the neighborhood's lower-income residents without a crucial life service. A monorail for Logan International? This year, Massport may finally make the decision to streamline ground transportation at the airport. And is it worth it to recycle now that it costs Boston more to haul away recyclables than trash? It's our local news roundtable. Later in the show, a brother and sister time travel through black history in an imagined world grounded in a contemporary reality at times heartbreaking and bitter. In his debut novel, author Tochi Onyabuchi crafts a dystopian story on the cutting edge of today's speculative fiction. Riot Baby is our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Gen Dumpchis, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Hi, Gen. Hey, how are you? I'm glad to have you. Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Hello, Seth. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Seth. And <laughs> Sue O'Connell, commentator for NECN and WGBH and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello, Sue. Hello, Kelly. You know, your title's getting longer it's and longer. It's longer. <laughs> just, just, just a lot of letters. I'm just going to say. Um, <laughs> let's start with some good news. I'm taking it to be uh, good news again. And that's this monorail uh, proposal at Logan. They've actually put some money down. So it's not like just we're just pie in the sky. This could happen. Yeah, so we, we had the relatively new uh, CEO of Massport, Lisa Wieland, uh, in for an editorial roundtable. And one of our reporters, Greg Ryan, said, hey, what about that monorail you guys talked about, I, I want to say 2018? And since she's the new CEO, she was very careful. She she kept referring to it as an automated people mover. Um, <laughs> But uh, she she said they're still considering it. They've tapped a company, a consulting company, to kind of look at the cost and everything. But the thing that Massport is struggling with, I think any of us who have been to Logan, uh, which Massport uh, owns and operates, we've seen how difficult it can be to get in and out and get around. I personally stick to the blue line whenever I'm heading to the airport. I can't sit in that traffic in the tunnel. You know, it's just a miserable experience. So uh, what Massport is thinking about is uh, different ways to move people quickly in and out of the airport, especially as the airport grows. And the monorail is one of those options. It may be one of the most expensive options. I'll take it because I am furious. Did I mention furious <laughs> at this whole Uber Lyft situation and, you know, the give over to the taxis, which, you know, are not, haven't been good for me, but whatever. And I mm-hmm. used to be in taxis all the time. That's my rant leading into your comments. <laughs> so I would be thrilled to see a monorail. Well, I, th- I think it is something that Boston needs. The airport is really fragmented. It's unlike any other airport of our size that I've been in. Um 
I think, you know, connecting the terminals in a better way would be greater. I mean, have, if you've ever been to Terminal A, there's like this outpost you have to go underground and then come back up to get to. It's really a hassle. Um, why not connect that, connect Terminal C, uh, B, and E? I mean, it's – there's and, and other airports have this. Yeah, other yeah, airports yeah. Have they this. do it. Um, I can remember the big Logan 2000 <laughs> that actually ended in 2003, I think it was. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. short-lived. And, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was a long project, and it was supposed to make it all easier, and it, it just didn't seem to make it easier, and it, it is harder than ever. Um, you know, we, we get used to the pain, right? So mm-hmm. it, when, when mm-hmm. my daughter was young and we're fortunate enough to travel, we'd go to other airports, and we'd get back to Logan, and she'd be like, what is this? And I'd say, we're a world-class city. (laughs) You know, I I, I sometimes think that just, like, Disney should just take over everything, right? Like, or Las Vegas. Then we'd have a monorail, we'd have a boat, we'd have a number of different ways to get around that would all be free. Yes, this is true. Um, And I just want to emphasize the point that this is not pie in the sky in other places. It's it's all over the world and certainly Mm -hmm. all over the country. And it has proven itself to be effective many times over. So when you talk about investments that pay off, this is not a risk. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Right. I mean, I know you got to outlay the money, but goodness gracious, we're about to get a really bad reputation, if we haven't already, to the rest of the country about our public transportation, our MBTA. So if we can at least fix the airport situation, this might be better. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, and it's one of those, I think, like kind of thinking a little bit bigger. I know what Massport has been trying to do is they've been trying to invest in that uh, Logan Express mm-hmm. uh, bus that go, it, you know, uh, drops you off in Braintree or, or picks you up in Braintree. Uh, in Back Bay. But that's also, it almost seems like that's not going to be enough because we're, if we're thinking, you know, in 2050 or whatever, you know, I, I think a monorail makes some sense, especially in terms of how fast to get people in and out. It makes a lot of sense. And you're self-propelled, so to speak. Anyway, <laughs> right. uh, let's move over to you, Seth. This is yes. a story that on its face seems okay. And then you realize all the levels. Um, yeah. This is about the the laundromats going away in Charlestown. Yeah. Just yeah, talk it, about what sure. it's, it's, it has so many layers to the story. <laughs> well, it really does. It seems pretty mundane at yeah. first. And then once yeah. you get into it and yeah. listen to people and how they've been dealing with it and people who have no idea about it, it becomes a little bigger. Um, yeah, there was a fire two and a half years ago at the the last remaining laundromat. And the owner of that building had every intention of putting a laundromat back. But in the course of rebuilding, they realized it was just too expensive. Uh, the startup costs for wow. a new laundromat, uh, water, all of those things, the new uh, high-efficiency machines are much more expensive than the older ones from 10 years ago even. So it was just not financially feasible. And, of course, commercial rents are, are higher than they used to be too. Um, so uh, instead of a laundromat, it became a daycare, a private daycare. Um, the problem with that is there are, uh, you know, Charlestown has a lot of low-income people, and it also has a lot of high-income people. Uh, the low-income people all of a sudden had nowhere to wash their clothes. Um, the problem that they ran into was having to take a bus to Somerville or into walk over to the North End. Other people were just using other people's washers and dryers who had them. Some were traveling all the way to Waltham to relatives' houses you know, on their schedule, you know, not, not their own, so whenever they could. Another offshoot was some kids were, were going to school with dirty clothes. You know, they didn't get the laundry. They didn't make the trip. You know, it was, you know, take an entire day. If they didn't have time, kids were coming to school with dirty clothes. Um, that led to bullying. We have some cases of that. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of offshoots. Some of the young people who, who see things through a lens of, of social justice were thinking, you know, hey, the wealthier people get a, a daycare, which mm-hmm. they need. We lose a laundromat, which we needed. 
you know, we lose everything, you know, and that's uh, that's part of the argument, too. And then there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have washer and dryer in their houses yeah. now. They didn't even didn't even know that this is an issue. Yeah, this is one of those invisible yeah. costs of gentrification yeah. and the invisible burden of living in poverty or experiencing poverty. You know, I'm I'm fortunate enough where I live in Roxbury, we have uh, there's six apartments in our building and we have one washer and one dryer that's coin operated. Uh, we live on the third floor and often we have to go to the laundromat and it's a burden for me. Right. So mm-hmm. and when I'm on my way to the laundromat in my car, I see my neighbors bringing their kids, spending all day Saturday at the mm-hmm. laundromat to get their laundry done. So, you know, this is the sort of holistic look that I think neighborhoods have to deal with and find ways to make sure that people aren't left behind, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when something happens. Like, obviously, daycare is a big issue for everybody and everyone in the city. But at the same time, as Seth eloquently says, so so are clean clothes. And then I think about those kids going to school with dirty clothes yeah. and being bullied again. Yeah, I, I remember growing up in Quincy in a tiny apartment. I mean, we had we had a washer dryer in the basement, but it was frequently broken or it was too small. Landlord wasn't going to fix it. And I, you know, I would often go with my mother and father to the laundromat a couple of blocks away to get everything done. Sometimes we didn't have enough time to do all the clothes. So it kind of piled up. It's like, all right, well, it's time to go to the high efficiency or the, the bigger machines in the laundromat. So it is one of those things that I think we kind of take for granted or we just kind of assume like, oh, everybody's going to be fine. I remember... Those laundromats that we went to, they were always full. Mm. There was always a lot of people mm-hmm. there. So there is definitely demand. It just seems like the costs are outpacing uh, the demand or, mm-hmm. or people are just not thinking about it, as we were saying, in a holistic manner. Well, I can round out the discussion about that and say that in Cambridge, where I live, there are many laundromats, I think probably because of the college students more than anything yeah. else, driving that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a moment some years back when my dryer broke, okay, playing a tiny violin for me. <laughs> so I had to go to the laundromat. Um, and I went to Watertown. It's a big one. And, you know, it was, talk about being full. Yeah, it was always full. And I, t- to your point, Sue, remember thinking, wow, this is so hard doing this. Yes. And I, it's just me in my household. But if you had Kids, your whole family, yep, yep. as many people do, that's a lot. One of the things know. that I know that uh, in JP, the, the laundromat that we use, uh, what one of the ways they're combating the cost issue is that they're charging, as my mother would say, an arm and a leg for drop off. Mm. Right. So for folks who are fortunate enough, and I use the service from time to time mm-hmm. to drop off your clothing, I mean, I'm paying like you know, four times, yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but yeah, it's worth yeah. it for me right. and, and I can do it. But I, you know, it's, they're also f- finding ways to add services like uh, some dry cleaning uh, delivery and, um, you know, sewing and tailoring small, t- t- but it's, it's a struggle. And I see how hard they're working mm-hmm. to find other revenue streams, no pun intended, mm-hmm. to be able to support where they're going to be. Cause I, I imagine that rent's going to, you know, it's everywhere around the city, uh, these sort of convenience and necessity uh, uh, stores and 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 um, uh, retailers, for lack of a better word, are are going to be having the same challenges everybody else does when well, it comes to rent. This seems to me to be a perfect thing for um, a city council people to address, mm-hmm. um, and you know, community activists to address with them, yeah. because you got to help the the people who could provide the service be able to provide it, because this is not good mm-hmm. on so many levels. Yeah, yeah. The owner of the mm-hmm. building. Um, he did everything he could, um, and he said in the end it's just got to be something maybe that has to be subsidized. Yeah, and I know some schools are actually uh, across the country are adding washers and dryers yeah. 
to, you know, the school services that they have. Then you get into a whole thing <laughs> yeah. about the kid, you know, shaming the kids. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm really, yeah. you know, no, seriously, yeah. that's, right. You don't want to be that kid who's yeah. gets, that's a, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on, but uh, let me remind folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Gen Doomchus from the Boston Business Journal, Seth Daniel from the Independent News Group, and Sue O'Connell from NECN and Bay Windows. And we're talking about the latest local news stories you need to know. Sue. Cape Cod finally Uh, has a pot shop. Yes, and we can see that the lifelong dream of making sure that minority (laughs) people have access to legal marijuana Mm. and the job is being fulfilled because Provincetown has not virtually very many uh, (laughs) around (laughs) residents who are African-American or of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, Boston still does not have uh, a pot shop, uh, although Brookline does, uh, another community that one might fall into that category. And, uh, you know, I think it's time that if um, folks are concerned about the social justice and equality aspect of our cannabis business, it's time that people start calling uh, the mayor, calling their city councilors in Boston and asking, you know, what's what's the delay? Mm -hmm. Why is it taking so long? And are we actually uh, living up to the premise that we were going to try and right some wrongs of history here by giving people equal access? You know, uh, and it's not just about the access to the cannabis, but it's also about the entire business infrastructure that goes along with opening these stores. Because like every other retail, you've got people who work in the front of the store, you've got marketing, you've got people who are dealing with the lighting and the growing and the acquisition, and it's just another opportunity uh, that Boston is missing out on. And as much as I totally buy into the idea that let's do it right, let's make sure we're, we're, we're doing it the ethically and legally, I, I'm just horrified to think that we still don't have a cannabis store in, Mass, in Boston. Um, we should say that Cura Leaf is the one that won the, the the company that won the marijuana store in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Um, you're at the Boston Business Journal again, so let me put this <laughs> question to you, which is there was screaming and shouting, as I recall, at the last cannabis board meeting yes. about this very issue. And it doesn't, I guess something happened. Nothing's really happening. It's still we're still in the same place. So, so Jessica Bartlett, <laughs> uh, she's our reporter on on healthcare, cannabis. Uh, uh, those are two of the, the couple topics she covers, and and uh, she was actually at the at the meeting where where all that shouting occurred, and it was about uh, access uh, to to folks who who don't necessarily have the money that big companies like Cureleaf do. Um, and the commission uh, is trying to listen. Uh, they did have a listening session. Uh, they did move some of the uh, licenses forward. Uh, but I think part of the issue, too, is uh, it's it's the attitude, right? Boston Mayor Marty Walsh was a leading opponent of marijuana legalization. And I think if you're a business person, big or small, uh, you see those statements, you you read the tea leaves, and you, and you think, well, maybe I'll go to Worcester or maybe I'll go to Provincetown instead where I'm going to face less uh potential political blowback. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a top-down thing. I mean, De- Deval Patrick, you know, he's running for, for president right now. He's probably not going to talk about how much, how long it took mm-hmm. medical marijuana shops to open under his uh, governorship. And a lot of that was his attitude of he didn't really want to be involved in it. Um, you know, so it's one of those things where it starts, it starts at the top. And I, and, you know, to your point, Sue, about like reaching out to the mayor, 
politicians respond when people say something when they when they talk to them. So maybe maybe that's the best course of action. And Seth, we also have this other layer of communities involvement mm-hmm. where you you know this this community arrangement thing. You've got to get a pass from the community. Sure. And there are several that have just said we're not we're not doing any of that. Nobody can come here. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> no. there are a number that voted against it. So you have like Everett and Revere. Both mm-hmm. of those um, are not open uh, to the industry. Um, you got to question if there is an industry. I, I've sat through meeting after meeting mm-hmm. after meeting at the local level, and they get the zoning board passes it, the planning board passes it, and then it goes off into some place we don't know much about. And and I've tried to get information mm-hmm. from the state on this. It's very hard. Yeah, I've tried to follow these these proposals, whether it was in Chelsea or in the South End, um, all over in JP. And and once it gets to the state, it's it's hard to find it. Um, they don't really track it that well. They don't have great information. Um, you know, it, it it's like goes into some dark hole and you're not sure where it's happening or when it might come back out. Um, there's one in Chelsea that is um, uh an economic empowerment mm-hmm. one, and, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be one of the first ones coming. I have no idea what's happened to it, um, and I can't find out. Well, I've done a number of conversations about this, uh, not only in this space, but also um, on basic black. And um, at one point, I had a panel of people. I said, I believe the, 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 the entire panel is five people, and I'm the fifth one. I think I have everybody here on the panel that's ever gotten close. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, there's a couple of other people, but that's it. Which mm-hmm. is kind of pathetic. Yeah. There we are. <laughs> All right. Let's move on um, to talk about being stuck, mm. <laughs> Seth. Yeah. All right. So we all know about the trucks getting stuck on Store Road. Oh, We've yeah. We've seen that. Star we know Road. about it. I didn't know Store Road. You're right. That's yeah. an expression for it. I did not know so many trucks were being stuck in Sumner Tunnel. Yeah. This is this is kind of new, though. Um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the past, there used to be the toll booths there. Um, and so, I mean, you know, you couldn't get past it if you with were too humans, tall. With you, humans, with humans, yes, exactly. Yeah, you would you would hit the toll booths and you couldn't go in. But they removed the toll booths, and there's been uh, there's been all sorts of problems with that beyond just the trucks. Um, and they've yet to sort it completely out. But one thing um, that residents feel like could very easily be sorted out is these trucks that go into the Sumner and they get lodged in there. And this happens fairly frequently. Um, there's Really, uh, so they took the toll booths up, but they didn't put warning signs further down the road saying, hey, if you're this tall, you're not going to make it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, that's pretty status quo, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's just like the airport. <laughs> but and that might even store. be too late, right? Because you're yeah. in at that point. You're already... Once you're, once you're yeah. in. Well, they're hoping that <laughs> further down towards even into Revere and stuff like that, um, that they will get a warning that you're if you're above a certain height. You're not going to fit through. Uh, you need to seek, you know, at that point you could go through the Ted Williams tunnel and peel off and, and you could make it through there very easily. So um, uh, the residents in East Boston are calling for the state to put these signs there. Um, the reason it affects them is because most people in East Boston are using that tunnel to get into Boston. Uh, take their kids to school if they if they're mind going their to, business yeah, exactly. and they're getting stuck behind Get to all work this stuff. and and yeah. yeah when that happens it 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 ruins the day it, and, and and to to the point I mean I grew up in Revere and I lived in Winthrop mm-hmm. as a young adult trucks never got stuck 
in Sumner, mm. right? Mm. It never happened yeah. when there were toll booths because they would be. T- I have no recollection of it ever, ever happening. Actually, me either. So, yeah, you know, now here. we're in a situation mm. where we've replaced, you know, and you can argue pro or con around the electronic toll, but we oh, have. I argued uh, con. Continue. But we, <laughs> <laughs> we, ha- we haven't replaced that human touch because, sure. you know, it seems stupid to us when it happens, but a truck driver may not know, right? They may, they're not from around here. From Maine doesn't show something. up on yeah. their GPS and they're they are and they and there's no clear signage and you know i'm i'm always happy when i see seth cuz i got stuck uh, on that bridge that opens um, a couple of weeks ago over <laughs> in East Boston, Street the Chelsea oh, Street Bridge. I pulled show, up yeah. and I went, oh, no. <laughs> and I was there for 35 minutes yeah. thinking, if only I had listened to Seth about this. <laughs> so listen to Seth and put some signs up. Yeah, yeah, well, I know. Is anybody moving toward doing that? Have you had anybody I think heard they're going to have some meetings. I mean, the city council or <laughs> oh, Lydia great. Edwards is calling for the state yeah. rep. I mean, everybody's, it, everybody, I think, is in agreement. But <laughs> then again, it's a, it's a state situation. So oh, how here we go. Fast. Yeah. We move to this. There might be another uh, couple dozen trucks stuck before we actually put up a sign. So. Well, you know, and, and I hate to say this, you know, it's going to take probably some serious injury before somebody not. really yeah. pays or, attention. Or two trucks getting stuck in the lanes. That would probably and just close the tunnel completely. Oh, that would do it. God. That would do it. Oh, my God. Oh, this don't, don't. It would take from days not your lips to, to recover God. from yeah, that. that would be, and that then, would be then people say, wow, if we had a monorail, this would, this would be working fine. <laughs> You're right on that. <laughs> Intercity Monorail. Again, yes. you got any comment on this? Well, I think I think it's one of those things of, uh, you know, there's uh, the photo on the Internet, sometimes read services, of user experience. It's a photo of a sidewalk, and everybody's walking across the grass uh, rather than using the sidewalk, right? And I think, we're, you know, you've got to put the signs where people are going to yeah. see them. It is maddening to be in a right-turn-only lane, and you only find right. out when you're uh. in it. You know, because yes. they, they didn't they didn't put any signage yeah, or it's Boston. like it's on the it's on the, the street and you don't even see it until you're like in, right in front of it. So I, it's, it's I feel a YouTube channel coming on here. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could just drive around and do these things. I think it would be great. I am reminded many, many hundreds of years ago when I was moving to Boston and my dad had one of his friends driving a truck <laughs> and put my stuff on it. And the guy called me and he's like screaming at me on the Miss Kelly, Miss Kelly. Yes. I can't get on this road. Where? I, how am I supposed to get over there? To where you? It was a whole thing, and I, you know, who, and I have no sense of direction, by the way. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I can't get on this star on road. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it was not fun. Anyway, I did get the stuff. Uh, let's move on. Uh, We've triggered Callie. She's yes, okay, I know. Uh, again, Doomshus, um, you are talking about the Heinz, and uh, it's not going to be a quick fire sale, as some people were thinking. Or want it to be? <laughs> well, I think I think what happened was uh, Governor Baker announced uh, this plan to sell the Heinz. Uh, his argument has been it's not full enough, um, uh, and it's it's a better deployment of that land to to sell it and then use uh, the proceeds from that to finance an expansion of the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center, um, which he there was a plan to expand that center, uh, which he shut down. Uh, when he got into office, basically saying, you know, he didn't he didn't want to spend the money to do it. He didn't feel it was a good idea. Uh, but he's saying now that if we sell the Heinz uh, and and uh, use that money for Boston Convention Center, then th- that f- that that makes it palatable to him. Um, the problem that the plan has is uh, it's got a political problem. A lot of people felt blindsided by it. They felt they weren't uh, they didn't have buy in um, and. 
the Back Bay Association, they're concerned about how it's going to um, affect them because obviously they get a lot of business from the Heinz. Yeah. Uh, a lot of bi- a lot of retail uh, is in that area, and they're afraid of the impact of that. So um, it seems like it's got a long way to go, um, but there's still a lot of questions, uh, unanswered questions about it. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is walk through the Prudential Center, you know, and see the number of people who are wearing badges, yes. you know, in Italy and, you know, shopping and out using the Back Bay. And to Gin's point, you know, the, the Back Bay business has really, really felt blindsided by this. And it would be, uh, I think, a huge disaster for the Back Bay if the Heinz just closed and, and all of that traffic, that foot traffic and that retra- retail traffic just went away. You've got entire... Uh, establishments, including the Prudential, the new Prudential mm-hmm. Center, built around the expectation that you're going to have folks going to expos. So it, it, I think it just needs a lot more thought. It needs to be done very intentionally. And if I may say, as just a consumer of expos, you know, if I'm going to go to an expo, I prefer it to be there because then I can, you know, bop down the street to various interesting places. I can go across the street and get my stuff fixed at Apple. I can go into the Prudential and wander around. I mean, you know, it's it's got a lot to offer. It's more vibrant than the seaport there. Even like I think of the Comic-Con. Yeah. And that's always a highlight for the Back Bay because you see people dressed up. Any number of ways, yes. walking down the street. And yeah. Highlight of mine once was seeing in a bar across the street, strawberry shortcake with a Miller Light. That was awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but, and that's in the seaport now. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. So, but they they move it back and forth. I think that what I heard was that, you know, uh, a, a convention like that prefers, you know, the, of course, the hub city. of the yep. city. You yes. know, I mean, yes. you can get in the middle of nowhere in the seaport very fast. Tell me about <laughs> it. I mean, and it's it's lovely, the building, but, you know, there, yeah. many things have to be considered. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad somebody's fighting to keep it there. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with UTR local news contributors, Gin Dupchis, Seth Daniel, and Sue O'Connell. We're talking about the local headlines you might have missed. So, Sue. Yes. Giant recycling bins going oh, the way of the dodo, perhaps. Gosh. This recycling issue is just so, so troubling. You know, Matt O'Malley, uh, a city councilor, he's in charge of the environmental um, beat, if you will, on the city council. And, you know, in the city of Boston, we each, each resident um, has these big, big blue bins and we're able to recycle paper, uh, plastic and cans. And um, because... Uh, you know, my neighbors, no matter how many times I leave notes that you can't just put plastic bags in there, you know, we, we don't. We put pizza boxes in. We put food particles in. We put plastic from our peanut butter containers in there. And China, where most of our recycling had been going, has decided uh, for, for a number of reasons, and most of them financial, that they are no longer going to take our dirty recycling, right? So that means that the cost of recycling in a single stream, meaning putting everything in there, has just exponentially increased for cities and towns, and especially Boston. So um, Matt, uh, along with some other uh, counselors, are working at trying to figure out what the right answer for Boston recycling is. Do we have to go back to individual bins for cans and plastic and paper, or is there another way? Uh, What's absent from this conversation completely, which is horrifying, 
is the reduce part, right? Yeah. When the right. recycling trucks go by in Boston, it says reduce, recycle, reuse. Right. But the fact is that we're now, I think, in a situation globally, and cities and towns across Massachusetts and other parts of the country are feeling this, it's too expensive to recycle. Mm. So that stuff is going to end up in the landfill mm. and in our water and in our food, especially the plastics. We're going to have to start really thinking about how we reduce the use of plastics. I was trying to explain to um, one of my nieces recently that the amount of plastic that I came in contact with as a child compared to her mm-hmm. lifetime is it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just everything we touch has touched plastic. Yeah. And um, we're just going to really have to think hard about what we're going to do about it. And again, you know, who's going to get impacted the most by this? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's going to yeah. be the elderly. It's yeah. going to be uh, communities that are uh, experiencing uh, poverty or below the, 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 the income levels. So, uh, you know, this is a big deal. Um, I just have to say that here's something else to put on the table. If it costs more, where are those costs going um, to everybody in the city? I mean, so then are you mad saying, well, I'm just not recycling. I got to pay, you know, twice as much, three times as much to recycle for the privilege right, of you're recycling. Paying five cents for <laughs> yeah. a deposit, yeah. right? And then you're yeah. paying more to recycle. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's so it's just it's just this this wasteful money train. Yeah. You know, yeah. you'd like to think that it's it's so ingrained now that there could be some also some creative solutions. But but here we are. Well, I think part of it's mm-hmm. incentivizing people or, or making it e- – I mean, I think part of the reason a lot of people do do single stream is that you basically dump it all in there. and then. Yep. Uh, but even – I mean, even at my house, like, we have a debate, you know, every now and then. Like, wait a second. Does, does this exactly. go – we have a little bucket in, in the kitchen. So it's kind of like, you know, to make it as easy as possible – as seamless as possible for people to do it, I think that's that's one of the best incentives uh, to uh, reorient this or, or or do it differently. It's you got you got to make it easy for the average person who doesn't really have a lot of time to think about on a weekly basis what's uh, what to put where. And there's the the post sorting idea, mm-hmm. you know, which is is also expensive because, yeah. you know, it, it I, we're often having the same argument about what you can and cannot recycle in the house, and I often think, well, if I can't figure it out, no, that's right. You know, well, this is this is a burden, you yeah. know. So, uh, and it, the the problem with the food in recycling is that it contaminates clean Everything pieces else. that can be used. So right. it's it's a complicated question. And. Um, Seth, I have been watching some stories with with people who are experts in recycling yes. who have said what I thought was correct is actually not correct. So, you know, it's not even a it's beyond is this recyclable? It's like Okay, yeah, it is, but now what you're doing, how you're doing it, is wrong. I'm like, well, I, well, I I'm just. <laughs> well, I, I can I can recall going to the Casella plant, uh, which yeah. is in Charlestown, where they do most of the sorting for Boston, and you wouldn't believe what a plastic bag does to that equipment. Yeah, it's oh, like yeah. kryptonite. It just destroys it, um, and and several times a day. And you know, on my block, just probably on Monday in the recycling, I probably saw like 15 plastic bags. You know, and people throw them in there and you can't have them in there and it, it's expensive. Um, you know, you worry about these facilities that have, are doing our recycling because they, how long can they maintain? They yeah, there's <laughs> they that, that they wishful can. recycling, they call it. Like, yeah. let's yeah. throw the rubber hose in there because I think yeah. I can recycle it. And then it <laughs> jams up <laughs> toys, that. shoes, yeah. co- you know, it just because it has yeah. some plastic glass or, or, or rubber and it doesn't mean that you can recycle it. Well, I think this was another situation where we just all came at this not in a uniform way, statewide or nationwide. So 
everybody did their own, even community-wide, did their own thing. And so now it's hard to get some uniformity, some understanding, some we all are, are misinformed about what is the way to do it or not. Um, I can just say for myself, in terms of making it a part of one's life, I've gone from deeply resentful of giving up my plastic bags to dumping the onions and stuff in my purse because I was just mad that I had to carry the bag. <laughs> and now, you know, I have like 99, you know, carry bags. Sure. So it can happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> even to those most stubborn. <laughs> um, Seth, I love the stories that you have uh, in your papers <laughs> at you. the Independent News Group about the older people that are just sitting right there who are gems and bring so much uh, sure. information from past times. So mm. you have a guy that you're celebrating in one of the papers, 100 years old. Absolutely. Uh, lived his whole life in Chelsea? His whole life, except <laughs> when he went off to World War II. Wow. He always gives that qualifier. So he fought, he was in the Pacific Theater then. He was actually part of the ground crew that put the A-bomb onto both of them, onto the planes. Um but yeah, Charlie Lanzillo, he turned 100 this month. Um, he's quite a guy. He used to actually work for the Chelsea Record um, back in the day with using the hot lead type. Wow. wow. <laughs> he still has some some scars from that hot yeah. lead over the years. But yeah, he's lived. He was born um, on Chester Street on the, uh, what do you say, on the third floor. In, or no, he was born on the first floor. Hmm. When he got married, he moved to the third floor. Okay. <laughs> wow. And he lived, he lived there for uh, Chester Avenue for quite, for most of his life. Um, he moved to elsewhere in Chelsea as an older person. Um, he's really well thought of, but he's got these stories that are just, uh, you know, they're from a different time, but yeah. it's the same place. He, like, for instance, um, uh, when Chelsea was predominantly Jewish, you know, he was Italian, so he didn't have to follow the same rules of uh, the um, Orthodox Jewish people who lived there. And, of course, they couldn't turn their lights out, right? So to make a little money, he had his own little territory and he would go in those days in Chelsea. They didn't lock their doors. Sounds crazy, but they didn't. And uh, he would turn off the lights, and there would be a couple pennies there, put wow. them in the pocket, and <laughs> wow. move on. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's very funny, but um, it was true. It was the way it worked, and everybody looked out for each other. Um, uh, he's He loves all the changes that have happened. Um, he loves... Uh, living in Chelsea, and I asked him why, you know, everybody fled Chelsea at one time, you know, couldn't get out of there fast enough. He said he never even considered it. Mm. He enjoyed being able to walk to work, which everybody wants to do now, Mm -hmm. and when he was walking to work, kids would be playing jacks, and he'd like to sit there and play with them and then move on to work and then come home and be close to his family and his kids, Um, and, and yeah, 100 years in one place. I do hope that the city fathers have done an oral history with him because he's got both cultural yeah. and historical notes that uh, should definitely uh, be a part of something much bigger than yeah. himself. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. he actually even confessed in our story to once having taken his mother-in-law's name out of the police logs when he was living <laughs> So He said, it's been long enough, I think, it's that okay. I can remember. That's the limitations there. Is that... We won't say why she was in there. <laughs> well, I like it. I like it a lot. I will guess off the air. Yes. <laughs> in any case, what an, a great up note to end on. And yeah. I thank all of you for joining me. Yes. Thank you. Again, Doomchus is the digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Sue O'Connell is a commentator for NECN and WGBH and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up, a daughter who has a special gift and a son whose birth in the middle of a riot sets him up for a painful life's journey. 
Their entangled stories drive the plot in author Tochi Onobuchi's contemporary world of oppression. It's his first adult novel and our February selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. At first glance, Mama, Ella, and Kevin seem to live in a here and now, achingly familiar to a number of black families. But very quickly, Riot Baby reveals itself to be a time-traversing tale of the future infused with the frustration and rage linked to incidents of the recent past. Tochi Anabuchi takes readers on the journey of siblings navigating their past, current, and future worlds. Riot Baby is our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Tochi Anabuchi joins me from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Tochi. Hi, how are you? I'm happy and I'm glad to have you. A very exciting book. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. So let's begin at the beginning. Where did the idea for the book come from? So it actually, I would say, came to be in, I guess, the closest approximation of its current form, probably sometime late 2015. Hmm. This was at a time where there was, I guess you could say, a certain ubiquity of videographic footage of police-involved killings. And so I think at this point, you know, we've seen the deaths of Eric Garner. We've seen Michael Brown just left to sort of lie on the on the pavement in Ferguson. George Zimmerman has been acquitted of the shooting death of Trayvon Martin and so many others, so many others. And I remember feeling at the time, having just graduated from law school, a sense of uh, impotence and this feeling that there was this general futility about it all. But also, too, one thing that I started thinking about was Rodney King. Mm -hmm. That was one of the seminal moments and memories of my childhood was seeing the Rodney King footage. I believe it was a morning before we went to school. It was broadcast, I think, on the Today Show. Mm. And so I remember uh, very vividly that being a thing, but not quite understanding its full import uh, and, and how it was connected to everything that followed in L.A. But immediately this linkage started to form in my mind of this continuity with regards to black Americans and police-involved shootings. You know, you had uh, Amadou Diallo, you had Sean Bell. It's sort of in between the in then York and City. now. Mm. And... Mm -hmm. This felt very much like a story that needed to get out of me. Uh, there was a lot that was sort of roiling in my mind, and I had just started a job at the office of the New York State Attorney General with their Civil Rights Bureau. And so I was doing a lot of work with regards to civil rights, and particularly with regards to youth and incarceration in the New York State prison and jail system. Uh, so I was being surrounded by all these different manifestations of state-sanctioned oppression of black Americans, of black and brown Americans. And the way that I personally process the world is through writing. And so this was in many ways a way for me to deal with a lot of the feelings that I was having at the time. 
So listening to you and that explanation of where the book came from, somebody could think, wow, this is an interesting nonfiction book. No, it's speculative (laughs) fiction. It's science fiction. So a lot of stuff is happening in here that's grounded in the reality you just described, but other stuff is happening. I just want to make that clear to people that (laughs) this is a novel and uh, you have envisioned two main characters. One is Ella and the other is Kev. Uh, Just a brief bit about who Ella is and who Kev is. So Ella and Kev are sister and brother, and they grow up essentially in the shadow of the L.A. uprising that followed the acquittal of the four officers who were initially charged with the beating of Rodney King. Kev is actually born during the the uprising itself as the city is sort of lighting itself on fire. And Ella is is about, you know, I'd say— seven or eight years older than him in that regard. And, you know, the book follows Kev's birth in South Central. It moves to their childhood in Harlem. And then subsequently, uh, Kev is incarcerated at Rikers. So the story follows him through that, finally sort of returning to the West Coast uh, in a section that is set in Watts uh, in the very near future. What I was impressed by is that it feels like it's today, but it could be any of these last few years in the decade, as you've described. And so when something, when a story is grounded in a today kind of reality, it has a, a different kind of edge to it when you go off into imagined worlds, because it's it's quite grounded in something that most people can recognize. And that was an interesting twist and turn to me. And I, I believe it's kind of a trend in speculative fiction now. What do you think? I do think so. I think... Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about it, science fiction is an inherently colonialist genre. You know, Mm. when you think back to its beginnings, you know, it was a bunch of white dudes and it was all about... going to alien landscapes and, you know, the hero was someone who took over, which, you know, when you think about it, sounds eerily familiar. But what we've been seeing, I'd say, over the past, you know, at least a decade is this subjects of former empire have started to, you know, infuse the genre with their own visions. And you have this, in a sense, decolonization of the genre. And so all of these people are bringing their their histories and their realities to the writing of speculative fiction, of science fiction and fantasy. And I think also you see a lot of them taking advantage of the genre's power to operate as reality and metaphor in the same instance, so Mm. that alien Mm. invasion stories or first contact stories are also stories about colonialism. Post-apocalyptic genre, the dying earth subgenre, is a parable about climate change, Uh, the the X-Men and the civil rights struggle, that sort of thing. And uh, that was something that I wanted to sort of, that was a power that I wanted to redouble in a sense with this story with Riot Baby. I wanted to take that and apply it to a recognizable America, a recognizable situation Mm -hmm. and, you know, use the imagination to extrapolate, you know, Mm -hmm. what would it look like? You know, science fiction is also always asking that question, what would it look like? And the question that infused the birth of Riot Baby is, what would it look like to obliterate the police state? Hmm. So I want to give people a chance to hear your voice on the page. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to ask you to read from uh, beginning from page 51. Mm -hmm. And we should say as a frame for that, 
Kev, who, as you mentioned, is younger than Ella, had been sort of on a straight and narrow path, the kid in the neighborhood that everybody thought was going to make it and get to school and, you know, get out of the neighborhood and do great things. And yet he gets caught up in a situation that's not unfamiliar. I mean, he's been navigating this road and doing well. And then this is an example of the kinds of stuff that he had to try to navigate during his time as a young man. Certainly. Yeah, he's very much the one who looks like he's going to get out, but the world happens to him, I guess you could say. But then I'll see an opening and make a dash for the door, and one of the cops will slam into me and pin me against the counter, my face smashing into the top while they hit me twice in the ribs and twist my arms behind me, and the other one raises my head and slams it into the glass again, so hard it cracks and blood spills out of the cut above my eye. I'll know it's winter break because I'll fight against the cop's grip to raise my head, and I'll see Jamila standing there behind the counter, brown eyes wide with horror. In that moment, I'll feel a part of the universe split off, like a branch snapped off a tree trunk, and that piece of the universe has me in it with her. I'm standing in front of the counter, and Jamila's back from winter break, and I'm on winter break too because I've been busy at school learning things and building things, and we'll talk about the things people talk about when they know that they're going to fall in love and get married and raise beautiful, brilliant, peaceful kids. But right now, I just wish she didn't recognize me. I'd give anything for her not to have recognized me. That's my guest, Tochi Onyabuchi. He is the author of Riot Baby, and it is our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, in your book, you have references, because you can go anywhere you want to go because it's speculative fiction, mm. to a lot of real history, though. And you don't really pause to explain a lot of it. Sometimes you just reference it and put it in the context of what's happening and keep going. Why did you want to do that? Why did you want to... We know about Rodney King because that had a pivotal moment for Kev in his life. But other references, for example, to the the killing of the nine people in the Charleston church, Mother Emanuel. Why do that? So one thing that I, I thought a little bit about while drafting Riot Baby was audience. And I think, you know, the, the question of audience at this stage and I think in this day and age in particular, given recent controversies in the publishing industry, is a very heavy and weighted question. Who are you writing for? And I wondered a little bit who I was writing for. Uh, and I ultimately came to the, the answer that I was writing for myself. Um, this was very much an act of catharsis. But at the same time, I did recognize that there were people in my imagined audience who felt the way that I felt about a lot of what was going on and would hopefully see those feelings reflected in the work and that it would sort of hit the tuning fork inside them and it would resonate with them. So, you know, my imagined audience knew what I was referring to uh, with regards to the reference to Charleston. They knew what I was referring to with regards to, you know, 1967 in Detroit. Uh, they knew what I was referring to in all the instances of police-involved violence that occur throughout the book. You know, they knew what I was referring to with regards to various references during Kev's time in Rikers. And I didn't want to you know, stop and explain a lot of those things, in part because, you know, on a craft level, that would have interrupted the narrative, that would have, you know, sort of put the brakes on a story that I wanted to have go at 
full tilt. Uh, I wanted it to move full speed ahead, and I didn't want there to be any sort of roadblocks. I also wanted the reader, who didn't necessarily get those references, to, to do the work of understanding them. If they feel compelled to look up any of the things that are referenced in the book afterwards and educate themselves, that was something that I wanted to push them to do as well. But also, too, with regards to these characters, we spend the entirety of the book you know, essentially in their heads or just over their shoulders. And they would know all of these references uh, without having to have them explained in the middle of the narrative. And so I wanted to simulate that experience as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Tochi Anyabuchi, author of Riot Baby, his first adult novel, and our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Which brings me to my next question. You've moved from, in this book, young adult science fiction, which is what you usually do, and decided to, have, speaking of audience, go toward an older audience. Though I have to say a lot of adults read YA. Why? Funny story about that. I, I came into uh, young adult literature almost by accident, I guess you could say. Everything that I'd written before my very first novel, you know, in the decade and a half that I'd been trying to get published had been geared towards an adult audience. Generally speculative fiction, science fiction and fantasy, but everything that I was reading at the time was adult fiction. And so I knew very, very, very little about uh, YA, but while I was in law school, I befriended a young woman, Tiffany Lau, who would eventually become my very first young adult editor. At the very end of law school, I'd written this science fiction novel that I was immensely proud of. This was my best work yet. And I spent the following summer, when I should have been studying for the bar exam the first mm -hmm. time, trying to sell this. And when I, I ran into trouble, I lamented on Facebook of all places, and she reached out, and we talked about the book. And while she didn't feel it was a good fit for the young adult audience, she did want to work with me. So, you know, we put our heads together and I came up with the idea for Beast Made of Night and I started writing. It was my very first time writing any young adult fiction, but I, I took to it very, very, very quickly and I realized that it was, it was very fun, you know, mm. among other things. And it exercised certain writing muscles that felt new and it invigorated me. And the whole process seemed very seamless. I sent it to her. She pitched it to her boss. And then suddenly I'm at the table talking promotional strategies. Oh, that's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just very interesting because, you know, some people stay in one genre and others go back and forth. So and now you're at the point you can do both, I would imagine, as a result of the publication of this book. Definitely. It feels like I have the crossover and the jump shot. Yeah, very good. <laughs> well, I am interested in the siblings in the book because this is the second time your YA book, War Girls, two sisters are torn apart by war and fight their way back to each other. And you have two siblings here. So I was just curious about, do you have a sibling thing going on? Do you have siblings that you like to? And, and both of them are dealing with history and future because War Girls is based on real wars, but it's set in a world that's kind of futuristic Black Panther-inspired Nigeria, I'm told. So, so I was just wondering um, what that was about. Certainly. I So I am the oldest of four. So you do have a sibling thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, writing through some issues. <laughs> Two younger sisters and a younger brother. And I've, I discovered at some point in film school, I attended film school before I attended law school, that 
my best writing came when I wrote directly into my fears. When I confronted the things that that were most terrifying to contemplate or those parts of me that that felt, you know, like the deepest, most essential concerns and preoccupations that I carried within me. And one that I constantly return to is family. I love my family more than anything in the world, uh, more than writing even. And I found that the most powerful stories that I've been able to sort of pull out of me have involved issues of family. And I find that there's a very immense and unique bond with regards to family that, you know, doesn't necessarily see itself replicated in its entirety in other relationships. You can have people who feel like family but aren't blood-related to you. You can have people who are blood-related to you who you have very complicated relationships with. And I just find that very naughty and a source for immense drama and conflict. And as a storyteller, I'm always looking for the drama and the conflict in a hmm. situation. Well, I also noted that anger is a theme in the book. Control rage, a little bit more specific. I see it first driven by Ella and then Kev. Why anger? And did you think suppressing the anger is kind of an underpinning of riots, if you will, coming back to the theme of your book? Certainly. I mean, you know, Dr. King said riot is the language of the of the unheard. Uh, I think another thing that was very much in the ether that attended the birth of this book, you know, in, in you know, about a half decade ago was the policing of protest. So, you know, you saw it in you saw it in Baltimore, you saw it in Ferguson. Every single time that there would be any sort of protest with regards to the deaths of black Americans at the hands of police, there were always voices saying that protesters needed to do it differently. They needed to do it in a more quiet fashion. They shouldn't block freeways. You know, they shouldn't march. They shouldn't kneel at football games even. And, you know, it was as though, you know, the powers that be were trying to instruct us towards a more convenient, for them at least, you know, method of protest. And one of the things that I believed was happening was that they were trying to tampen down that anger that fueled a lot of those protests, because that seemed very much like the most dangerous and perhaps most productive aspect of it. You also saw it in personal relationship. One thing that I found very interesting was, you know, the relationship between, you know, the current generation of activists and older generations of activists, where, uh, you know, particularly in, in the 60s and whatnot, you saw a lot of very disciplined, organized protests, or at least that's the picture that we get of it now. Whereas here, you see a lot of protesters and people of our generation not afraid to show that anger. And there was this, I guess you could call it a hint of respectability politics, which is to say that, oh, if you're this visibly angry, you're not going to get done the things that you want to get done. Or, you know, if you're this visibly angry, you're giving them a reason to come at you, to uh, enact violence upon you. And so it was very interesting to watch all the different ways in which anger was policed. And I wondered a lot what it would look like if that anger was essentially uncaged. You know, if I wrote into the fears that all of these different people had with regards to that anger breaking free of the instructions or the caging, if you will, that society had tried to enact on it. I think also, too, you know, one one element that was very important to me was I had watched the X-Men, the animated series, as a kid. 
And I was very much drawn to the character of Magneto and the ways in which he operated as a foil for for Professor X, who was very much, uh, I guess you could say, an analog of Dr. King. And in Magneto, you saw a lot more facility with violence against the human race and a lot more facility with with the issue of mutant domination, for instance. He felt like an angrier character. And I felt very drawn to that because I wondered if a lot of that anger wasn't fueled by a sort of futility, if you will, with regards to human-mutant mm-hmm. relations. You know, Magneto had lived through so much, including the Holocaust. He'd seen what humans were incapable of, and, he, and he'd seen in the entirety of his life the inability of humans to move past that, to move beyond that, that capacity that they had to do all this evil towards each other, but also towards, you know, people and things that they that they feared and didn't understand. And that made a very powerful impression on me as a kid. And I think one of the reasons that Ella is so angry is because of this futility that she recognizes. She's seeing all these things that happen and that have happened over the course of American history. And to her, it seems as though nothing is Mm -hmm. changing. It's just the shape of the oppression that's changing and not necessarily its substance. And that makes her Mm -hmm. angry. That's my guest, Tochi Anyabuchi. He's the author of Riot Baby. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, you're getting some good reviews. Publishers Weekly called your book <laughs> staggering and said it was political speculative fiction at its best. I'm not quite sure I understand what that means, but anyway, they loved it, <laughs> and as have others have said it. This is about the time where I ask my authors, you know, what you want readers to take away. But I want to combine that uh, with you because this is Black History Month. So I wonder if there's a message from your book you want to deliver during Black History Month and that you want readers to take away. Certainly. What I want readers to to take away from this book is the final word of the book is very intentional. Um, yeah, I'm not I was going about to, to say, don't it. say. Um, <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> um, but it's it's very, very, very intentional. And towards the end of writing the book, and as we got into more of the promotional and, and publicity phase of this book's publishing, it occurred to me that there would be a, a diversity of audience uh, that would approach this book. And so one thing that I wondered about was how they would look at that last word and what they would interpret it as meaning. Uh, and I, I wondered, too, if there would be a different variety of interpretations to it. And so I want readers to think about uh, what they imagine you know, what they feel when they read that final word and whether or not that vision contrasts with the vision that other readers have with regards to the ending of this Wow. Book. Well, that's a homework assignment. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you so much, Tochi Anyabuchi, for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. Tochi Anyabuchi is the author of Riot Baby. It's his first adult novel and our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Francisca Monahan and engineered by Dave Goodman. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please download us. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. 
See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.